I invited you to turn to 1 John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 27. We're almost done with this series called Rooted, Digging into the Promises of God. We've been learning about the very specific promises that God, God makes to us, very concrete, tangible, here and now promises. Uh, we've been exploring those over the last five weeks. This morning, we're going to jump into one that is very near and dear to my heart and that is crucial to yours. Um, and you're going to see that as we walk through the scriptures together. 1 John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 27. We'll start in Matthew, then move to 1 John. And let me begin this morning by asking you, what is it that, that discourages you? What is it that tempts you to feel deeply discouraged? All of us know what discouragement feels like. What is it that, that tends to get to you? What is it that, that tends to grab hold of of your heart and make you vulnerable to discouragement. We've all been discouraged at one time or another. Most of us have been discouraged many times. If you're a Mariners fan, you're always discouraged. Somebody say, man, that's just, you know, goes with the territory. If, uh, if dieting has become your hobby like it has mine in this season of life, then you wrestle with discouragement regularly. You know about that. Uh, this week, my wife and I came home on Monday to find that our dishwasher had uh, had malfunctioned and flooded the entire subfloor of our downstairs uh, home, and the consequence is the whole floor is being ripped out and has to be replaced. Perfect timing a week from Thanksgiving. Somebody say amen, right? You know? There's a temptation to feel discouragement about that. There's, there, there's honestly no shortage of things that, that can feel discouraging sometimes. Sometimes being a parent can be discouraging. I, I love the story, I think I've shared it before, about a, a woman who sees a young dad with a fussy, cranky two-year-old in the supermarket. And as she passes him in the aisle, he looks like he's doing the family shopping. She hears him whispering, be patient, Billy. You're okay, you can do this. We won't be here very long. Just stay calm, Billy. And, and moved, she touches him on the shoulder, says, I'm sorry, to interrupt your shopping, but I just want to let you know you're being a great dad. This is fantastic. Your patience with little Billy is incredible. The man looked at her and said, oh, my son's name is Patrick. I'm Billy. <laughs> you know, he's trying to talk himself through that. Yeah. But seriously, what, what is it that tempts you to become discouraged? The word discouragement is an interesting one. It's a compound French word. It comes from a Latin root. What it means is literally to lose the belief that you can win. In fact, its root is military. When an army loses its belief that it can win, often what happens is everybody throws down their weapons and runs. And that's the root of the word, discourage, to remove courage, to lose courage. And it has Great power. Uh, discouragement can turn a victory that's about to happen into defeat. Discouragement can reverse all the progress made towards victory in a situation. Uh, history is full of stories of battles where one army was winning, but then a prominent personality got taken down, and then suddenly everybody was discouraged, and they ran the opposite direction. 
Florence Chadwick was an American athlete, an Olympic swimming champion, and she was renowned for many things, one of them being that she was the first woman to swim the 21 miles across the English Channel solo, did it by herself. The next year, emboldened by her success, she set herself a higher challenge, and that was to swim the 26 miles from Long Beach, California to Catalina Island offshore, solo swim, again, uh, unassisted. And the morning that she set out to do this, as it turned out, was one of those cold, foggy Pacific beach mornings. The fog closed in, was dense and thick. They set out, she had a little boat following along behind her with a, a, a support team in it so that if something happened, you know, they could take care of her. And after 16 hours of swimming, she suddenly stopped and began to tread water in a dense fog. And the, 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 the assist, support boat that was there pulled up and, and she pulled off her goggles. She said, I, I can't do it. I, I just can't do it. I think I want to quit. And, and they tried to encourage her, no, you can do it. You can do it. And she was looking around. You can't see the shore. And the fog was thick. She was exhausted. She says, no, I, I, don't, I think I'm going to have to call it. I can't do it. And, and so they pulled her into the boat. And not a minute after they pulled her into the boat, the fog cleared. And she discovered that she was less than half a mile from shore, less than half a mile from finishing. And afterwards, Florence said, when I saw that, I realized I could have made it easily but I guess I just psyched myself out in the fog. Now here's the rest of the story. Two months later, she set out to try it again. And once again, the fog came in dense and thick. But this time, she knew she could do it. This time, she just kept going fog or no fog, shore or no shore, because she knew from her previous experience that she could succeed. And she did. She made it the 26 miles. She was the first woman to achieve that. A reporter afterwards was talking with her and asked her what made the difference. She said, this time I kept a mental image of the beach I saw from the boat when I quit the first time. <laughs> she said, I just kept that in my head and I knew, I knew I could make it. You see, discouragement has the power to defeat us right when we're about to win. And it especially has that power when it comes to the most important struggle of your earthly life which is the struggle to overcome sinfulness. The struggle to put behind you your temper, your greed, your pride, your lust, your whatever it is, endless thirst for the praise of man, whatever it is. Discouragement has the power to cause us to, to quit in that battle. Sometimes right when we're about to win in that battle. And God makes a very specific promise related to that struggle in our lives, and we're going to explore it this morning. But we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 27. I invited you to turn there a minute ago, and we're going to learn from someone who most of us are, are not accustomed to learning from. And that's a guy by the name of Judas. We find the last part of his story in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 3. Judas was a man who decided to follow Jesus. Think about that. He made a conscious choice, the same one we've made. And he carried out that choice for a little under three years. He lived that day to day. He followed Jesus, experienced the Lord's power, experienced his grace, experienced ministry under his leadership. But despite all that, Judas' story doesn't end well. 
The Bible says that he became so discouraged by his own failures that he took his life, that he committed suicide. Uh, Listen to what the scripture says, beginning with verse 3. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, Judas who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned as a result of his betrayal, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. Let's, let's pause for just a moment. The worst thing that we can do is turn Judas into some kind of a cartoon villain, into some kind of a, a B-movie Hollywood bad guy who just goes around all the time looking for evil. The scripture says, no, he chose to follow Jesus. He was, in fact, chosen by Jesus. And that even after his failure, he didn't celebrate what he had done. The scripture says he was seized with remorse. And he repented. He returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. And and listen to what he says. Imagine what he's feeling when he says this. He says, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Now the chief priests and teachers of the law were hard of heart and their response to him was, what's that to us? That's your problem. They said, that's, that's your responsibility. You know, deal with that on your own. The scripture says Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This is the story of a man being overcome by discouragement and despair. This is the story of a man who, like you and I, was seized with remorse, who like us went so far as to confess his failure, who like us went so far as to repent of his failure, but stopped short of the last part of confession and repentance, which is to allow God to give us his grace and his forgiveness. Instead, Judas was overcome by discouragement. Now now think about this a little bit and and realize that Judas wasn't the only one who betrayed Jesus that night. The Bible says lots of people did. The Bible says his closest friends ran away and hid themselves when he was arrested and seized. Most of us would hope that our closest friends wouldn't do that. His did. And the scripture says that Peter's betrayal that night of Jesus was at least as egregious as Judas's was. In fact, Personally, it was more so because Peter, who had sworn that Jesus was his best friend, who had sworn that if everybody else ditched him, he wouldn't, Peter denied him to his face three times with cursing and an oath, looked him in the eye. If your best friend betrayed you in that way, you'd have a hard time putting that behind you because it wouldn't just be a material betrayal, it'd be personal The guy's looking you in the eye, looking you in the face, and denying you and condemning you. So Judas wasn't the only person who betrayed Jesus that night, and and Judas wasn't the only one who was seized with remorse, as the scripture says. The Bible tells us that the disciples felt terrible about their failure that night. Luke tells us that on the road to Emmaus, they were hanging their heads, sorrowful at their failure in that moment. The Bible tells us that Peter was particularly grieved. The scripture says that he got alone and wept bitterly because of his failure. 
So, so Judas wasn't uh, the only one who betrayed Jesus and he wasn't the only one seized with remorse about it. And you and I understand that feeling. We have all been seized with remorse. We know what that feels like. You know, a couple of weeks ago in first service, I said something that caused me to be seized with remorse. Just give you a little bit of a background. Uh, when we were in Bible college, our best friends pastored in the Hispanic Assemblies of God. And uh, we would do stuff together, ministry events together. We went to their church. They came to the church that we served. And, and uh, they, being Hispanic by descent, would laughingly tell me that when I came to their church, we were on Latino time. Things weren't going to happen on time. Well, in first service a few weeks ago, I made a joke about myself being late, and I said, I guess I was just on Latino time. Now, I intended that one way, but I found out afterwards that there was somebody who took it another way, and I was seized with remorse. Can I just tell you? I had a hard time sleeping Sunday night. I felt so bad because that was not what was intended, but it was, we've all been there. You've been there. You've felt that desire to take something back, even if it was unintended. You know what Judas was feeling in this moment. What do you do when you feel like that? How do you wrestle with that? How do you deal with that? You know, Judas, verse 4 tells us, confessed his sin. He went to the temple and said, I've sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Lots of people are willing to confess what they've done wrong, but they won't take the last step which is to go face to face to the God they've wronged and let him forgive them for that wrong. Peter did that. Imagine how excruciating that was to be called in front of the person that you betrayed and to look him in the eye and to be humbled in that moment by your own failure. See, that's the thing that Judas avoided. And, and let's understand something about this feeling of remorse that we're talking about. Other people will rarely feel your remorse the way you do. And that can make you feel very alone. The chief priests and teachers of the law said, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. In other words, they, they didn't share what he was feeling. And that can be extremely difficult. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together said that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And that's very, very true. And the Bible says that as a consequence of this discouragement, Judas despaired. Verse 5, he went away and hanged himself. You see, church, let's understand something. God wants to deal with our discouragement because there is a kind of insanity that goes with discouragement. Discouraged people isolate themselves. That's what Judas did. He didn't go back to his friends. He didn't go back to the other disciples. He didn't gather with those who knew him. He isolated himself. He got alone. See, that's what discouragement can do to us. When we're feeling that kind of thing, the worst thing we can do is be utterly alone. The reality is that it's in that moment that we need other people more than maybe any other moment. And then discouraged people do something else. They think of themselves as unlike anyone else. Because they isolate, they think of themselves as being unique in their sin. Judas wasn't. But he thought of himself that way. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in my office counseling with someone who will tell me, well, Pastor Greg, my problem is unsolvable because I'm different than everybody else. And can I just tell you, it's all I can do not to laugh out loud when somebody tells me they're different than everybody else. No, you're not. <laughs> no, 
we're all 98% the same. There's little deviations, the little 2% that makes us weirdos, but 98% we are the same. But discouraged people forget that. They isolate, they think they're unique, they think that their problems are uncommon. And then the last thing they do, the last part of the insanity, is that they try to adjust to hopelessness. They try to say, I can live with this. Judas tried that and found that he couldn't. You see, church, without hope, you can exist, but you can't live. Life flows from hope. And what's going on inside of us can overwhelm what's happening outside of us. It did in Judas's case. There was no need for him to commit suicide, but because of what was happening in him, he did. Because of the power of discouragement, he did. And we want to understand this, and God wants to address it. God wants to address our tendencies, we're going to see in the promise, in just a moment. You know, as of this year, with the Washington Nationals winning the World Series, you talk about discouragement, do you realize that there's only one team in Major League Baseball history that has never yet been in a World Series? Our very own Seattle Mariners. Somebody say yay, right? We feel discouraged about them. To be a Mariners fan is to be discouraged. You know that even if they start winning at the beginning, what's going to happen? We all look at each other and we go, yeah, right, whatever. And it has a certain power over us. Like Lucy always pulling the ball away from Charlie Brown, right? There's a discouragement that Charlie Brown feels. But on a serious note, church, understand this. God says to every one of us who are filled with remorse, to every one of us who's feeling that weight of shame and guilt, God says, I have a promise for you. I have a solemn and a sacred promise that I want you to hear today and never forget because it will always be true. And here's his promise. It's found in 1 John chapter 1. And the promise reads like this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a huge promise. It means that no matter how great your failure, it means that no matter how repeated your failure, how gross your sin, how ugly the shame and guilt that envelops you over it is, no matter how grotesque it is, God says, if you will come to me face to face, then every single time I will do two things, I will forgive you. And, just as important, I will purify you from all unrighteousness. That's a very significant promise. You see, the word righteousness is a relational one. It's a rich relational word, meaning to reset the relationship as if nothing had happened. It means to be able to look into the eyes of the friend you've betrayed and not see their hurt anymore. Instead, to see their love for you. It means to know that despite the fact that you have failed a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, a friend, whoever, God himself, to be purified from all unrighteousness means for that break in your relationship to be utterly and completely removed as if it had never happened. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah describes it exactly that way in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 when he's talking about this new covenant in which we now live. And here's how Jeremiah describes God's 
conduct within that covenant. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Circle that word, remember. It doesn't mean that God will give himself magic amnesia. That's not what it means. It means that when you look in his face, when you look in his eyes, you will not see the reproach of your failure anymore. Instead, you and him will have righteousness, that ease in one another's presence that best friends have. I will remember their sins no more. Church, please understand, this isn't a psychological trick. It's not a therapeutic methodology. Those things have their place and they're important, but this, this is spiritual. This is supernatural. This is God and you and eternity. And it's a sacred promise. Greg, if you come to me 777 times, 70 times, seven times to steal an analogy from Jesus' teaching over the same struggle in your life, know this, I promise you, I will meet you there with forgiveness and I will purify you from all unrighteousness. Now there's a reason he makes that promise and we're going to see it as we finish here this morning. But first of all, just hear it. It doesn't mean that you will escape all the earthly consequences of your sins. <laughs> you know, there are people on earth that will not look at you the same after things have happened. There are relationships on earth that won't be restored here and now because of sin, because of betrayal. And there may be circumstances that you are stuck with on earth as a consequence of your sin. This isn't a promise to absolve us of responsibility here in this life. But it is an absolute promise that our relationship with God will be utterly restored every single time we go back to him. You know, you know why this is important? Because some people get so discouraged by their own struggles that they stop going to him. That they stop going to him. Because they said, I've been so many times. He can't possibly continue to react to me the same way. And yet, he solemnly promises that he does and that he will. Church, understand this. You will be purified from all unrighteousness. It means to be set free from that cloud that hangs over a friendship after there's been betrayal. It means that that cloud is taken away. And this is important because it is through this process of experiencing God in this way that you overcome in your struggle against sin. You see, think about this, church. The only reason not to go to Jesus personally, like Peter did and Judas didn't, is your pride. Judas, after he realized what he had done, couldn't face his friends, couldn't face his family. He couldn't even face himself. He was too ashamed, which is a backwards way of saying that he was too proud. Peter, by contrast, endured the humiliation of going to the Savior that he had promised so much to and fallen so far short of. Peter had to go stand in front of him and look him in the eye. And some of us are so filled with self-loathing and with an ignorance of who he is that we would never do that. We would avoid God in that moment every single time because the weight of shame is too much. 
But Peter knew better. Peter went and endured that moment. And what he discovered in that moment was Jesus was far more than Peter ever thought he was. And as a consequence, Peter was changed. God gives us this promise so that we can be changed by that very same dynamic. And the question is, what will you do with your remorse, with your sense of guilt and shame? What will you do with it? Will you allow it to drive you into the insanity of discouragement? You'll isolate, you'll pull back, you'll avoid? Or will you walk into the presence of God and offer that guilt and shame and remorse to him personally. He says, if you will, I will, I will not only forgive you, I'll purify you from all unrighteousness. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully. He said, shame and guilt are like coffee. If you drink it down to the very bottom of the cup, it will nourish you. Try to do anything else with it, and it will scald you. This is terribly important to understand. I think of a woman who I knew years ago who began to feel that her lusts were overcoming her. And as she wrestled with this sin, she came to me and said, Pastor Greg, I feel that I need to violate my marriage covenant. I said, don't do that. You don't want to do that. that. I said, if you do that, what will happen is your desire for God will begin to diminish. And eventually it will shrivel up and die. She said, oh no, that'll never happen. I said, if you choose this path, it will. She said, no, that'll never happen. Well, the end of the story is the same old boring end to that particular story. Today, she's not only abandoned her faith, but she actively fights against those who continue in her former faith and her lusts have completely ruled her life. You see, church, the first casualty of discouragement is that we stop struggling against sin and it's the struggle that gives us life. Let me say that again. The casualty of discouragement is when we stop struggling against sin because it is the struggle itself that gives us life. The scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 32 about a man named Jacob who had um, crossed a lot of boundaries, broken a lot of rules. And he came to a point in his life when the consequences of his actions were descending on him. His life was in danger, his family life was in danger, all because of his many and repeated sins. And the scripture says that he went to God and the two of them wrestled all night long. The man's name was Jacob. You can read about it in Genesis 32. And at the end of their wrestling match, God said, because you have wrestled with me, I now change your name. You're no longer Jacob, deceiver. Now you're Israel, my beloved. You see, church, it is our struggle against sin that gives us life. Our struggle to be Christ-like, to put away our temper, our anger, our lust, our lying, our cheating, our... All of those things that aren't Christ-like. It is our struggle to be Christ-like that gives us life. And this promise is intended to strengthen that struggle. Discouragement will cause us to rationalize our sin and to walk in it to the point where we lose our desire for God. Van Morris tells the story of a married couple who had a fight and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. After a couple of days of this, the husband realized that he needed his wife's help to catch an early flight. So he wrote on a piece of paper and left it on her nightstand, and it said, please wake me up tomorrow at 5 a.m. The next morning, he woke up and turned over and saw that it was 7 a.m. He had missed his flight. Angry, he turned over and found a note on his pillow from his wife, and the note read, it's 5 a.m., wake up. <laughs> See, we rationalize our 
sin. And we make excuses for it. And that's the very thing that will destroy us. So God says, Greg, I've made your promise. Every time you come to me with this struggle, every single time, I promise, I will forgive you and I will purify you from all unrighteousness. Church, this is important to understand because otherwise we become discouraged and can be vulnerable to quitting in that struggle. You see, here's the simple truth is that sin sometimes has to be unlearned. We, we want God to zap us with a magic pill that causes sin to cease in our lives, but the Bible paints a different picture. It says sin has to be unlearned. For example, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 these words. He says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, for example, and that each of you, catch this, should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. Circle that word learned. In other words, it's a process of learning. And, and sin isn't overcome by some technique. It's overcome by experiencing God's grace. So Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2. And he says, uh, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Catch this. It teaches us. It causes us to learn. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. What does? The grace of God. So, so let me bring this all together for you this morning. See, here's what happens, is that each time you go back to God with your shame and guilt and you look him in the eye and you bring it to him and you confess it and you own it, each time you do that, another part of your ego, another part of your pride is broken. And each time he gives you his forgiveness, each time he purifies you again in your heart, in your spirit, and you can feel that each time he does that, you discover something more about how much he loves you, how good he is, how powerful he is. And what happens over time is that you learn who he is so much that your desire to do what is good becomes greater than your desire to do what is wrong. But it doesn't happen if you don't own this promise. If you don't say, Lord, I believe that if I come to you with this again, that if I come to you with this struggle again, that if I bring my shame and guilt and look you in the eye again, I believe your promise to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. See, church, grace sets me free to keep fighting that battle until I win. Florence Chadwick, when she realized how close she was to the shore, said, oh my goodness, I could have done it. God says to us, hey, I can bring this victory to pass in your life. It happens as you believe my promise and you keep coming to me. Some of us have stopped going to him because we've gone so many times. And so we've stopped learning how deep and high and wide and never-ending his grace is. Paul understood this, and so he said in Philippians chapter 3, he described his attitude in light of this promise. He said, I have not already obtained all this or been made perfect. He says, I'm still in the struggle, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. 
In other words, Paul says, I'm committed to this battle all the way to the end. I'm not going to be content with my lust. I'm not going to be content with my greed. I'm not going to be okay with my self-centeredness. I'm not going to be okay with worshiping myself. Instead, I'm going to fight against that. I'm going to struggle against that. And every time I fail, every time I, I discover that brokenness inside myself, I'm going to go to God again. I'm going to keep going to him because he said every time I do, he'll meet me with forgiveness and he'll purify me from all unrighteousness. That's a solemn promise that he's making to you. You know, here's the truth. If we could all see each other's souls right here and right now this morning, there's not one person in this room that's not struggling. Some of us are tempted to discouragement over that struggle. But God says, here's my promise to you. Here's my promise to you. You need never be discouraged because every time you come to me again, I'll meet you in that moment. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for your promise. God, teach us to draw near to you with our shame and our guilt and our brokenness so that that struggle will stay alive in us so that we can discover how wide and high and deep is your love and your grace. I believe that some of us who are sitting here right now need to take our shame and guilt to Jesus again. We've become discouraged and so we stopped going to him. And as a consequence, we stopped being broken and we stopped being made new. If that's you, you can go to him right now. Right now. He'll meet you and he'll give his forgiveness and he'll purify that relationship again. All unrighteousness will be drained away. You can have that right now. Or you can live like Judas. It's your choice. We do thank you for your word, Lord. And as we go from here this morning, let it be with an absolute confidence in the promise you've given us. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church? Yeah, this is very real stuff.